If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you take them please and turn to the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. There are three verses of scripture that we want to look at as a foundation for the message which is entitled, A New Confidence. As you know, we've begun a new series of messages following the theme of new life. Last Sunday, we looked at what it means to experience the new birth where Jesus said you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And so it's the new birth. That's how we get into the kingdom of God, by repenting our sins and recognizing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Son of God who died on the cross to save us from our sins. And when we pray and trust Christ, inviting him into our hearts and minds, we through a miracle of the new birth, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, bringing new life to us. We are born in Christ and we are new creations, new creatures in the Lord. And so that's how it all begins. That's how the Christian life begins. It begins with new life coming out of the new birth experience. Today we're going to look at this idea of a new confidence. That is, once saved, always saved. You've probably heard that message or that, that uh, title or words as you've uh, been to church many times, especially on, among Baptists. We believe strongly in the security of the believer that once a person is saved, he's always saved. He can never lose that salvation. It doesn't mean that he won't ever sin again. It just means that when he does, he can go to the Lord as a child rather than as a stranger and seek forgiveness for it. But we're looking today at John chapter 10. This verse of scripture is packed with meaning and we could just use these three verses here and end it all. But unfortunately being a preacher, we must just use that as a springboard, okay? So John chapter 10, beginning with verses 27 through 29, the scripture says, and these are the words of Jesus, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Now let me point out to you several thoughts about these three verses of scripture. Notice in verse 28, he says that he gives to us eternal life. Well, how long is eternal? Well, it's eternal. It's forever. It is unending. So he doesn't give us a temporary life. He, he gives us eternal life for those who say that they were saved and then committed some kind of sin after they'd been saved for about five years or 10 years and needed to be saved again. Well, they didn't get eternal life. Evidently, they only got five-year life or 10-year life. But that's not the kind of life that our Lord gives to us. He gives to us eternal life, unending, forever. Notice also in verse 28, the words will never perish. And again, never means never, not ever, ever. You will never perish. Notice also in verse 28, the words no one. No one, no human being, no spiritual being. The devil can't do it. The demons cannot do it. The world cannot do it. No one can snatch them out of my hand. He repeats those words, no one, in verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. Notice in verse 28 and in verse 29. In verse 28, Jesus says, nobody's going to take them out of my hand. In verse 29, he says, nobody's going to take them out of the Father's hand. 
So we have double protection here. We have protection of the son, but we also have the protection of the father. And so we have double security, double protection, the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the hand of God the Father. So this verse of scripture speaks strongly about the idea of having confidence in that we can never, ever lose our salvation. Now, Allstate Insurance Company has a slogan that says, you're in good hands with Allstate. Uh, well, that's a great slogan, but unfortunately, like all insurance agencies, uh, they will give you insurance as long as you don't put in a lot of claims. The more claims you have, the greater the possibility is that they'll drop you like a hot potato. That's not true with the salvation and the assurance and the insurance, if you please, that the Lord Jesus gives to us. We can never fall out of his hands. We can never be snatched out of his hands by anyone or anything. I want to briefly share with you today eight reasons why we have a new confidence in this life that Christ has given to us. The first thing that I want to share with you that our confidence is based on the promise of scriptures, on the promise of scriptures. This book that I hold in my hand, and as you have in your hand, I trust, is the Bible. It's my copy of the Bible. I believe this to be the, God, the Word of God. I believe that it is without error, that it is without mistakes, that it is a book of truth, and it is a trustworthy book, and that we can take what we find written on the pages of our Bibles to be the Word of God, and it is truth. God cannot and God will not lie, and when God makes a promise, He keeps that promise, and He has recorded the promises of the eternal security of the believer upon the pages of His Holy Word. I point out two or three verses of Scripture to you. First of all, in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus said, therefore, or, the, or John, and He comes to the end of His uh, uh, writing of the Gospel, and he says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, why? Why did John record what we call the Gospel of John? He says that he wrote these things so that we may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why the Gospel of John, and we believe in extending it to the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is written and given to us so that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when we trust Christ as Lord and Savior, that is a promise that God will keep and we will never perish. We have eternal life. And he said these were written so that you might know that, not think about it, not doubt it, not maybe hope so. No, that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, skip over to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, also written by the beloved apostle. Again, he says these things in verse 13 of chapter 5. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may think about it, that you might kind of have hope about it. No, that you may know, K-N-O-W, that you might know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. So we have life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. That's a promise from the Lord and is given to us in his holy scriptures. So believe God's word. Trust God's word. He's not going to mislead you. He's not going to lie to you. He's not going to say, oh yeah, I'll give you life, but then not do it. 
is written on the pages of his holy book that we will have everlasting life. That is his promise. Notice the second reason. The perfection of the sacrifice. And the sacrifice that I'm talking about here is, of course, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament sacrifices were but symbols and foreshadows of the coming ultimate sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid by his death on the cross. So in John chapter 19 and verse 30, the Bible says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, that is, when Jesus, this is a verse relating to the sacrifice of Jesus, uh, he cried out to the Father, It is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The word finished there means completed, fulfilled, accomplished. There'll never be another sacrifice by Christ for our salvation. The Bible tells us that in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So if you were to lose your salvation, that would mean that Christ would have to come back into the world, be reconceived uh, by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, uh, live his life perfectly on the earth for 33 years, give his life, die, and uh, be buried and raised again on 30. He'd have to do that every time you committed a sin. And you can imagine how impossible that is. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, he meant it, it's complete, it's finished, it's been accomplished. The victory has been won. And so Christ perfected through his sacrifice the the reason for our salvation. Nowhere, nowhere, I challenge you, nowhere in the Bible will you ever find where anybody got saved twice. Never has happened. Never will happen. Once you are saved, had a genuine conversion experience to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved for all eternity. And you will never lose that salvation because of the perfect sacrifice Jesus Christ paid on the cross of Calvary. Number three, there is the perseverance of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 1.6 says, for I am confident. It's another word for no. I'm confident. I know. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And there's that word perfected again. The word perfected means completed, that he will fulfill it. And what he's saying is that when you, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, in essence what happened was that the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus in the Spirit, came and took up residence in your heart and in your life. And once you receive Christ as your Savior, you don't ever have to pray, oh, Lord Jesus, come and be with me. He's already with you. He will be with you. He will abide in you forever. And so you're never alone again. But when the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart, he began uh, a work that's called sanctification. Uh, The word sanctification simply means to be set apart. And uh, it, uh, it just talks about your spiritual development and your spiritual growth. And, and so you, you became an infant in Christ, if you please. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, how he was complaining that the Christians at Corinth were still sucking on spiritual milk bottles when they should have developed and grown spiritually to the point that they could have enjoyed a, a full course meal of the gospel. Uh, but they were still infants in the Lord. Well, you became an infant in Christ 
I've never seen a baby in the physical realm, in the human realm, who was born a full-grown adult. They were born tiny babies, and they grow, and they grow, and grow, and grow, and grow. That's the way you and I did. So we began growing physically when we are born again, and we begin growing spiritually when we receive the Holy Spirit. And he takes that salvation, and he develops it and carries it out unto completion. It's just kind of like a, a mathematical form. One plus one equals and you put them together and give the answer. One plus one equals two, I think. <laughs> okay. And, and, and so it, when you take an equation and carry it out to completion and you've got the answer, uh, that's what the Holy Spirit does in your life. He takes that salvation and he grows it. He develops it in you and he perseveres in doing this. He will continue to work on it with great determination. He says, and you will be perfected. That speaks of determination. And so you have the perseverance of the Spirit. The fourth thing is that you have the predestination of the saints. Predestination of the saints. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. The Lord wants you to be like his Son. The word Christian means little Christ. Uh, they were first called Christians at Antioch. Until then, they were known as people of the way. But people began to look at how they behaved and said, you know, they act so much like Christ, they're little Christ. And so they're little Christ. And so uh, he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, one of the most difficult uh, and, and next to impossible uh, fully, uh, doctrines to fully explain and understand is the doctrine of predestination and the free will of man. I don't understand either one of them other than that I trust them by faith that that's how God operates. I remember the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Somebody asked him uh, that uh, how would he reconcile the doctrines of predestination and the free will of man. He says, I don't have to. They don't need reconciling. They're friends. They work together. I don't know how, but they just do. There's the predestination and, and, and sovereignty of Almighty God that cooperates with and the, and the free will of man. And the two work together. They're two sides of the same coin. Dr. Curtis Vaughn, uh, late Dr. Curtis Vaughn, who was a Greek professor at Southwestern Seminary, uh, used an illustration one time. He said the, the, the predestination of God and the free will of man is like walking up to a door and on the outside of it says, whosoever will may come. And you walk through the door and get inside and turn around and look on the other side and it says it's chosen before the foundation of the world. So salvation is for all. And all of us have a free will to exercise. Otherwise, we're nothing but robots that move every time God pushes a button or a puppet that moves every time God pulls a string. I cannot explain it other than that it works. That's the way God made it. He, he predestines us, knows ahead of time what we're going to do and yet gives us the free will to do it. But they work together. So you have the predestination of the saints. And then you have the position of the saved. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore anyone who is where? In Christ. In Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. So my position is that I am in Christ and Christ is in me. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul wrote these words. 
in him, in Christ, you also, having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So if you've ever bought a house or a piece of property, you may have been asked to put down uh, escrow money uh, and um, whatever the amount it was, it's kind of a, a promise that uh, you're wanting to buy that property and you're going to follow through with the deal and, and, and pay the whole price. And so you just kind of put this amount of money up to kind of save it for yourself. If you don't follow through with it, then you forfeit the money. Uh, but he is saying to us that the Holy Spirit is a seal. He, he, is, he is our escrow money. He's our guarantee, our assurance. Uh, it's just kind of a down payment that the Lord gives to us in, 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 in receiving Christ as his Savior. And he says it's a seal, S-E-A-L. The word seal, of course, uh, can, it's not the animal that flops around in the, in the water. He's talking about a, a, a stamp or in those days of Paul, uh, where a king or a ruler would uh, put hot wax on a piece of paper and then take his ring and put the, the, the uh, emblem of his ring into the hot wax and it would be on the seal of a, of a document and uh, it, it gave it its authority. So the authority, the promise, the assurance of your salvation has been given to you by God the Father and he, the seal is the Holy Spirit. Folks, you can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not of him. And so it's the Holy Spirit who, who convicts you and convinces you and seals your salvation once and for all. And uh, so we have the, the sealing uh, of the Holy Spirit uh, as we are in Jesus Christ. We cannot fall out of him. I've used this illustration before, but since you have a hard time remembering it, I'll give it to you again, okay? You remember the story of Noah? He built the ark and um, he, the Lord called him inside the ark. He says, come into the ark. He didn't say go into the ark. He, he, ever noticed that? He, God wasn't standing on the outside saying, Noah, go into the ark. He said, Noah, come into the ark. Come in. And when Noah walked into the, the ark and all the animals were in there, his family was in there, God closed the door, sealed it. And uh, for 40 days and 40 nights, Noah and his family and all those animals floated around in the water. Did Noah ever fall out of the boat? He never fell out of the ark. Why? Because there was only one door and God had sealed that. Brother, when God seals something, it's sealed. I bet he fell down on the inside. All those animals in there and all that they do, <laughs> going up down the steps, feeding them, taking care of them, that boat rocking back and forth. Oh, I bet there were a few times that he might have slipped and fell down, but he never fell down. My salvation is secure. Now, I'm still a human. I still make mistakes. I still fall down. But I don't practice it. And that's what John talks about over there in his first epistle. He who practices sin is not of the Lord. It talks about a habitual lifestyle where you do it over and over and over again. If you live that kind of Christian life, there's something wrong with you, brother. You either not been saved or God's going to whip you one way or the other. 
but you'll never lose your salvation. So we have that security. We are in Christ. Number six, the present tense of salvation. John chapter five, verse 24 says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, H-A-S, present tense, has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. So it's not a salvation that I'm hoping to have someday. I have salvation right now in the here and the now. I've had salvation and eternal life ever since the day I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. Uh, and, and, and the same way with you. It's not something that you're going to have, but that you have. You have salvation, present tense, not past tense. And then number seven, the prayer of the Savior, the prayer of the Savior. John chapter 17 is actually the Lord's prayer. What we normally refer to as the Lord's prayer is actually the model prayer that Jesus gave in response to the request of the disciples who said, Lord, teach us how to pray. The Lord's prayer is actually John chapter 17 where the Lord pours his heart out to the Father regarding us. And in John chapter 17, verse 9 and in verse 15, John 17, 9 and verse 15. Verse 9 says, the prayers of Jesus, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now notice in verse 9 that the Lord is asking the Father for something for his sheep. And it was not just his disciples, but it was you and me too. There, the Lord in John 17 was praying for you. And he's saying to the Father, you have given those to me, and so I'm asking this on their behalf. And so in verse 15, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So our Father, our, son, our Savior's prayer to the Father was that the Father would protect us that he would guard us, that he would keep us secure in our salvation because we're going to be attacked by the devil. And one of the things the devil has on the top of his list is to create doubt. That's what he did with Eve when they were there in the Garden of Eden. Oh, God hasn't truly told you that you're going to die if you eat that fruit. Oh, he, he just wants to keep something from you so the devil just plants those little seeds of doubt in our minds. And Eve took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. And in taking uh, and yielding to the temptation, disobeyed the Lord and brought sin into the world. Adam did the same thing. And, but uh, we, the prayer of the Savior is that you're going to be under attack. The devil is going to attack you. Paul, Peter says he's like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. And so you need to be constantly on your guard. Be alert. Be sober. Take it seriously. This idea of the devil is not a joke. It's serious. And he's looking for a way to attack you and to bring you down. That's why he's ultimately wanting to destroy you. The devil has come to kill, steal, and destroy. Christ came to give us life. And so the Lord was praying for us. He's praying for us right now. When our Lord ascended to the Father after his death and resurrection, he went to the Father and his major role right now, of course, he said, I go to prepare a place for you, but he also is our great intercessor. 
And right now at this very moment in his wonderful, powerful, magnificent way, he's able to pray for all of us because all of us are oftentimes tempted in one way or another and he prays for our security, that we'll have the resistance to not yield to his temptations. The eighth and final thing is the power of God's sovereignty, the power of God's sovereignty. John chapter six, verses 39 and 40. John 6, 39, 40 says, this is the will of him who sent me. Well, who sent the Lord into the world? The Father did. Jesus said, I've come to do the will of the Father and always do those things that please the Father. So now in John 6, 39, he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose one. Is that what it says? No. I lose nothing. Nothing. I don't lose one of them. He repeats it in verse 40. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have everlasting or eternal life and I will raise him up at the last days. So there is the sovereign will of the Father. Every individual the Father has given to the Son is guaranteed to never be lost. I will never lose anyone that the Father has given to me. Now, one final verse of scripture, and I need you to turn in your Bibles if you haven't already done so to this passage. First Peter chapter one, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now notice verses 4 and 5. He's he give us living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. And he describes that inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. Verse 5 says that you are protected by the power of God and that your salvation is ready to be revealed in its fullness at the last time. And how's all of this done? He says in verse five, through faith, through faith. Notice in verses four and five, six things that he says about our inheritance. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it won't fade away, it is reserved, uh, it's protected by the power of God and it's ready for us. When we get there, it will be complete. It will be completed. Now, I don't know where else you could turn in the Bible that you could find anything that is any stronger about the security of the believer than these verses of scripture that we've looked at this morning. Arthur Pink said, if any of God's sheep were to perish, it would necessarily entail a defeated father, a disappointed son, and a disgraced Holy Spirit. And that's never gonna happen, folks. Never will. The Golden Gate Bridge was completed in 1937. At that time, it was the world's longest suspension bridge. It cost $77 million to build the Golden Gate Bridge. During the construction of the first section of this suspended bridge, 
23 people fell to their death. They stopped construction immediately and began to study how they could guarantee to the best of their ability that no one else would lose their lives by falling from the bridge. And so someone came up with the idea of putting a gigantic net underneath the construction. It cost $100,000 to build it and put it together. But during the rest of the completion till the bridge was completed, 10 men fell off the, off the bridge, but they were caught by the net that had been stretched out from underneath them and saved those men's lives. Well, God has a worldwide web that extends the entire earth and he has stretched it out beneath us. There is his under, forever underneath are the everlasting arms of the Savior. And we can never lose our salvation. We never can fall into the depths of hell. Never, never, never will we be able to do that. We will live and work freely and fearlessly knowing that once we are saved, we're always saved. And nothing, hell or the devil, can take it away from us. We are saved in the arms of Jesus. Let's bow together. Father, you never leave anything incomplete. And when you promised to give us salvation, it wasn't temporary. It was forever. And you've given us the Holy Spirit to reside in our hearts, to take the salvation that has been implanted in our lives. And daily as we walk in the Spirit, he helps us to develop the fruit of the Spirit until the day we reach your presence and our salvation is complete. Thank you for the security that we have. Thank you for the confidence that we have that once we trust you, we'll be saved forever. And Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that if there's someone in our midst who's never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you'll do your work of conviction convincing them beyond a shadow of a doubt that they need to repent of their sins and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you're here this morning and you've never been what we call saved, you've never asked Jesus to save you, and you're wanting to do that right now, I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. You don't have to say it out loud. You can if you want to, or just in the quietness of your heart. The Lord looks upon your heart. He knows what's in your heart. He knows whether you're sincere and genuine in asking him to save you. And if you will be sincere in praying this prayer, I'll guarantee you based on the authority of God's word that he'll do just that. So say a prayer something like this. Lord Jesus, I admit to you that I am a sinner. I have sinned. And I also say to you, Lord, that I've come to realize that you are the son of God. And that when you died on the cross, you were dying for me. And I'm asking you now, the best way I know how, please come into my heart. I accept you as my Savior and my Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you for the promise of eternal life. In your name I pray. Amen. Very simple prayer, but a very powerful prayer. And if you sincerely meant it for the first time in your life, welcome to the family of God.
The next thing that we do is to give an invitation, which is one way that we can publicly share with other people of our decision to follow Christ. Jesus said, if you confess me before me, and I'll confess you before my Father. So that's why we have an invitation. I'll be here at the front to receive you of God. The Holy Spirit should lead you to come forward. Let's stand together, and as Andre leads us, you come. Mm -hmm.